CD2 This wasn't the greatest statue of Om, but it was the closest. It was down in the pit level reserved for prisoners and heretics, and it was made of iron plates riveted together. The pits were deserted, except for a couple of novices pushing a rough cart in the distance. "'It's a big bull,' said the tortoise. "'The very likeness of the great god Om in one of his worldly incarnations,' said Brother proudly. "'And you say you're him?' "'I haven't been well lately,' said the tortoise. "'Its scrawny neck stretched out further. "'There's a door on its back,' it said. "'Why is there a door on its back?' "'So that the sinful can be put in,' said Brother. "'Why is there another one on its belly?' "'So the purified ashes can be let out,' said Brother. "'And the smoke issues forth from the nostrils as a sign to the ungodly.' "'The tortoise craned its neck round at the rows of barred doors.' It looked up at the soot-encrusted walls. It looked down at the now-empty fire-trench under the iron bull. It reached a conclusion. It blinked its one eye. "'People?' it said, eventually. "'You roast people in it?' "'There,' said Brother, triumphantly, "'and thus you prove you are not the great God. "'He would know that, of course, we do not burn people in there. "'Burn people in there? That would be unheard of.' "'Oh,' said the tortoise. "'Then uh, what, um... "'It is for the destruction of heretical materials and other such rubbish,' said Brother. "'Oh, very sensible,' said the tortoise. "'Sinners and criminals are purified by fire in the Quisition's pits, "'or sometimes in front of the great temple,' said Brother. "'The great God would know that.' "'I think I must have forgotten,' said the tortoise quietly. The great god Om, Holy Horns, would know that he himself said unto the prophet Wallspur, Brother coughed and assumed the creased eyebrow squint that meant serious thought was being undertaken, Let the holy fire destroy utterly the unbeliever. That's verse 65. Did I say that? In the year of the lenient vegetable, the bishop Kreeblefor converted a demon by the power of reason alone said Brother. It actually joined the church and became a subdeacon, or so it is said. Fighting, I don't mind, the tortoise began. Your lying tongue cannot tempt me, reptile, said Brother, for I am strong in my faith. The tortoise grunted with effort. Smite you with thunderbolts. A small, a very small black cloud appeared over Brother's head, and a small, very small bolt of lightning lightly singed an eyebrow. It was about the same strength as the spark off a cat's fur in hot, dry weather. Ouch! Now do you believe me? said the tortoise. There was a bit of breeze on the roof of the citadel. It also offered a good view of the high desert. Fryat and Druna waited for a while to get their breath back. Then Fryat said, are, are we safe up here? Druna looked up. An eagle circled over the dry hills. He found himself wondering how good an eagle's hearing was. It certainly was good at something. Was it hearing? It could hear a creature half a mile below in the silence of the desert. What the hells? It couldn't talk as well, could it? Probably, he said. Can I trust you? said Fryat. Can I trust you? Fryat drummed his fingers on the parapet. Mm, he said. And that was the problem. It was the problem of all really secret societies. They were secret. How many members did the turtle movement have? No one knew exactly. What was the name of the man beside you? Two other members knew, because they would have introduced him. But who were they behind these masks? Because knowledge was dangerous. If you knew, the Inquisitions could wind it slowly out of you. So you made sure you didn't know. This made conversation much easier during cell meetings and impossible outside of them. It was the problem of all tentative conspirators throughout history, how to conspire without actually uttering words to an untrusted possible fellow conspirator, which, if reported, would point the accusing red-hot poker of guilt. The little beads of sweat on Druna's forehead, despite the warm breeze, suggested that the secretary was agonising along the same lines. But it didn't prove it. And for Fryat, 
not dying had become a habit. He clicked his knuckles nervously. Um, a holy war, he said. That was safe enough. The sentence included no verbal clue to what Fryat thought about the prospect. He hadn't said, Ye God, not a damn holy war is the man insane. Some idiot missionary gets himself killed, some man writes some gibberish about the shape of the world, and we have to go to war? If pressed, and indeed stretched and broken, he could always claim that his meaning had been, at last, a not-to-be-missed opportunity to die gloriously for Om, the one true God, who shall trample the unrighteous with hooves of iron. It wouldn't make a lot of difference. Evidence never did, once you were in the deep levels where accusation had the status of proof. But at least it might leave one or two inquisitors feeling that they might just have been wrong. Um... Of course, the Church has been far less militant in the last century or so, said Druna, looking out over the desert, much taken up with the mundane problems of the Empire. A statement, not a crack in it where you could insert a bone disjointer. There was the crusade against the Hodgsonites, said Fryat, distantly, and the subjugation of the Melchiorites, and the resolving of the false prophet Zeb, and the correction of the Achelians, and the shriving of the... But um, that was all just politics, said Druna. Hmm, yes. Yes, of course, you are right. And, of course, no one could possibly doubt the wisdom of a war to further the worship and glory of the great god. No, no, none could doubt it said Fryat, who had walked across many a battlefield the day after a glorious victory, when you had ample opportunity to see what winning meant. The Omnians forbade the use of all drugs. At times like that, the prohibition bit hard, when you dared not go to sleep for fear of your dreams. Did not the great god declare, through the prophet Abbas, that there is no greater and more honourable sacrifice than one's own life for the god? Indeed he did, said Fryat. He couldn't help recalling that Abbas had been a bishop in the Citadel for fifty years before the great god had chosen him. Screaming enemies had never come at him with a sword. He'd never looked into the eyes of someone who wished him dead. Now, of course he had all the time, because of course the church had its politics, but at least they hadn't been holding the means to that end in their hands at the time. To die gloriously for one's faith is a noble thing, Druna intoned, as if reading the words off an internal notice-board. "'So the prophets tell us,' said Fryat, miserably. "'The great god moved in mysterious ways, he knew. "'Undoubtedly he chose his prophets, but it seemed as if he had to be helped. "'Perhaps he was too busy to choose for himself. "'There seemed to be a lot more meetings, a lot more nodding, "'a lot more exchanging of glances, even during the services in the great temple. "'Certainly there was a glow about young Vorbis.' How easy it was to slip from one thought to the other. There was a man touched by destiny. A tiny part of Fryat, the part that had lived for much of its life in tents, had been shot at quite a lot, and had been in the middle of melees where you could just as easily be killed by an ally as an enemy, added, or at least by something. It was a part of him that was due to spend all the eternities in all the hells, but it had already had a lot of practice. You know... "'I travelled a lot when I was much younger,' he said. "'I have often heard you talk most interestingly of your travels in heathen lands,' said Druna politely. "'Often bells are mentioned.' "'Did I ever tell you about the Brown Islands?' "'Out beyond the end of the world,' said Druna, "'I remember, where bread grows on trees and young women find little white balls in oysters. "'They dive for them,' you said, while wearing not a stitch of... <clears throat> "'Is something else I remember?' said Fryat. "'It was a lonely memory, out here with nothing but scrubland under a purple sky. "'The sea is strong there. "'There are uh, big waves, much bigger than the ones in the Circle Sea, you understand, "'and the men paddle out beyond them to fish, on strange planks of wood, "'and, and when they wish to return to shore, they wait for a wave, "'and then they stand up on the wave, and it carries them all the way to the beach.' "'I like the story about the young swimming women best,' said Druna. "'Sometimes th there are very big waves,' said Fryat, ignoring him. "'Nothing would stop them. 
but if you ride them, you do not drown. This is something I learned. Druna caught the glint in his eye. Ah, he said, nodding. How wonderful of the great god to put such instructive examples in our path. The trick is to judge the strength of the wave, said Friat, and ride it. What happens to those who don't? They drown, often. Some of the waves are very big. Such is often the nature of waves, I understand. The eagle was still circling. If it had understood anything, then it wasn't showing it. Useful facts to bear in mind, said Druna, with sudden brightness. If ever one should find oneself in heathen parts. Indeed. From prayer towers up and down the contours of the citadel, the deacons chanted the duties of the hour. Brother should have been in class, but the tutor priests weren't too strict with him. After all, he had arrived word-perfect in every book of the Septuagint and knew all the prayers and hymns off by heart, thanks to Grandmother. They probably assumed he was being useful, usefully doing something no one else wanted to do. He hoed the bean rows for the look of the thing. The great god Om, although currently the small god Om, ate a lettuce leaf. All my life, Brother thought, I've known that the great god Om, he made the holy horn sign in a fairly half-hearted way, was a, a great big beard in the sky, or sometimes when he comes down into the world as a huge bull, or a lion, or, 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 or something big anyway, something you could look up to. Somehow a tortoise isn't the same. I'm trying hard, but it isn't the same. And hearing him talk about the Septarchs, as if they were just, just some mad old men, it's, it's like a dream. In the rainforests of Brother's subconscious, the butterfly of doubt emerged, and flapped an experimental wing, all unaware of what chaos theory has to say about this sort of thing. "'I feel a lot better now,' said the tortoise. "'Better than I have for months.' "'Months?' said Brother. "'How long have you been, um, ill?' The tortoise put its foot on a leaf. "'What day is it?' it said. Tenth of Groon,' said Brother. "'Yes.' "'What year?' Uh, notional serpent.' "'What do you mean, what year?' "'Then, er, uh, three years,' said the tortoise. "'This is good lettuce, and it's me saying it. "'You don't get lettuce up in the hills. "'A bit of plantain, a thorn bush or two. "'Let there be another leaf.' "'Brother pulled one off the nearest plant, "'and lo, he thought, there was another leaf.' "'And you were going to be a bull?' he said. "'Open my eyes, oh, my eye, and I was a tortoise. "'Why? How should I know? I don't know,' lied the tortoise. "'But you, you're omnicognizant,' said Brother. "'That doesn't mean I know everything.' "'Brother bit his lip. "'Um, well, yes it does.' "'Are you sure?' Yes. I thought that was omnipotent. No, that means you're all-powerful. And you are. That's what it says in the Book of Ossery. He was one of the great prophets, you know. I hope, Brother added. Who told him I was omnipotent? You did. No, I didn't. Well, he said you did. Don't even remember anyone called Ossery, the tortoise muttered. "'You spoke to him in the desert,' said Brother. "'You must remember, he was eight feet tall, with a very long beard, "'and a huge staff, and the glow of the holy horns shining out of his head.' "'He hesitated. "'But he'd seen the statues and the holy icons. "'They couldn't be wrong.' "'Never met anyone like that,' said the small god Om. "'Maybe he was a bit shorter,' Brother conceded. "'Ossery, ossery,' said the tortoise. "'Nah, nah, can't say I—' "'He said that you spoke unto him from out of a pillar of flame,' said Brother. "'Oh, that ossery,' said the tortoise. "'Pillar of flame, yes.' "'And you dictated to him the book of ossery,' said Brother, "'which contains the directions, the gateways, the abjurations, and the precepts.' 
193 chapters. Oh, I don't think I did all that, said Om doubtfully. I'm sure I would have remembered 193 chapters. What did you say to him then? As far as I can remember it was, Hey, see what I can do, said the tortoise. Brother stared at it. It looked embarrassed, insofar as that's possible for a tortoise. Even gods like to relax, it said. Hundreds of thousands of people live their lives by the abjurations and the precepts, Brother snarled. Well, I'm not stopping them, said Om. Well, if you didn't dictate them, who did? Don't ask me. I'm not omnicognizant. Brother was shaking with anger. And the prophet Abbas? I suppose someone just happened to give him the cordicils, did they? It wasn't me. They're written on slabs of lead ten feet tall. Oh, well, it must have been me, yes. I always have a ton of lead slabs around in case I meet someone in the desert, yes. What? If you didn't give them to him, who did? I don't know. Why should I know? I can't be everywhere at once. But you're omnipresent. Who says so? The prophet Ashimi. Never met the man. Oh, oh, so I suppose you didn't give him the book of creation, then? What book of creation? You mean you don't know? No. Then who gave it to him? I don't know. Perhaps he wrote it himself. Brother put his hand over his mouth in horror. That's blasphemy. What? Brother removed his hand. I said that's blasphemy. Blasphemy? How can I blaspheme? I'm a god. I don't believe you. Eh. Want another thunderbolt? You call that a thunderbolt? Brother was red in the face and shaking. The tortoise hung its head sadly. All right, all right. Not much of one, I admit, it said. If I was better, you'd have been just a pair of sandals with smoke coming out. It looked wretched. I don't understand it. This sort of thing has never happened to me before. I intended to be a great big roaring white bull for a week and ended up a tortoise for three years. Why, I don't know. And I'm supposed to know everything, according to these prophets of yours who say they've met me anyway. You know, no one even heard me. I tried talking to goat herds and stuff, and they never took any notice. I was beginning to think I was a tortoise dreaming about being a god. That's how bad it was getting. Perhaps you are, said Brother. Your legs to swell to tree trunks, snapped the tortoise. But, uh, but, said Brother, you're saying the prophets were just, just men who wrote things down. That's what they were. Yes, but, but it wasn't from you. Well, some of it was, perhaps, said the tortoise. I've forgotten so much the past few years. But if you've been down here as a tortoise, who's been listening to the prayers? Who has been accepting the sacrifices? Who has been judging the dead? I don't know, said the tortoise. Who did it before? You did. Did I? Brother stuck his fingers in his ears and opened up with a third verse of Lo, the infidels flee the wrath of Om. After a couple of minutes, the tortoise stuck its head out from under its shell. So, it said, before unbelievers get burned alive, do you uh, sing to them first? No. Oh, merciful death. Can I say something? If you try to tempt my faith one more time... The tortoise poised. Om searched his fading memory, then he scratched in the dust with a claw. I remember a day. Summer day. You were thirteen. The dry little voice droned on. Brother's mouth formed a slowly widening O. Finally, he said, You believe the great god Om watches everything you do, don't you? You're a tortoise. You couldn't have... When you were almost fourteen, and your grandmother had beaten you for stealing cream from the still room, which in fact you had not done, she locked you in your room and you said, I wish you were... There will be a sign 
thought Vorbis. There was always a sign for the man who watched for them. A wise man always puts himself in the path of the god. He strolled through the citadel. He always made a point of taking a daily walk through some of the lower levels, although, of course, always at a different time and via a different route. Insofar as Vorbis got any pleasure in life, at least in any way that could be recognised by a normal human being, it was in seeing the faces of humble members of the clergy as they rounded a corner and found themselves face to chin with Deacon Vorbis of the Quisition. There was always that little intake of breath that indicated a guilty conscience. Vorbis liked to see properly guilty consciences. That was what consciences were for. Guilt was the grease in which the wheels of the authority turned. He rounded a corner and saw, scratched crudely on the wall opposite, a rough oval with four crude legs and even cruder head and tail. He smiled. There seemed to be more of them lately. Let heresy fester. Let it come to the surface like a boil. Vorbis knew how to wield the lance. But the second or two of reflection had made him walk past a turning, and instead he stepped out into the sunshine. He was momentarily lost, for all his knowledge of the byways of the church. This was one of the walled gardens. Around a fine stand of tall decorative clatchian corn, bean vines raised red and white blossoms towards the sun. In between the bean rows, melons baked gently on the dusty soil. In the normal way, Vorbis would have noted and approved of this efficient use of space, but in the normal way he wouldn't have encountered a plump young novice rolling back and forth in the dust with his fingers in his ears. Vorbis stared down at him, then he prodded Brother with his sandal. "'What ails you, my son?' Brother opened his eyes. There weren't many superior members of the hierarchy he could recognise. Even the Cenobiarch was a distant blob in the crowd. But everyone recognised Vorbis the Exquisitor. Something about him projected itself onto your conscience within a few days of your arrival at the Citadel. The god was merely to be feared in the perfunctory ways of habit, but Vorbis was dreaded. Brother fainted. "'How very strange,' said Vorbis. A hissing noise made him look around. There was a small tortoise near his foot. As he glared, it tried to back away, and all the time it was staring at him and hissing like a kettle. He picked it up and examined it carefully, turning it over and over in his hands. Then he looked around the walled garden until he found a spot in full sunshine and put the reptile down on its back. After a moment's thought, he took a couple of pebbles from one side of the vegetable beds and wedged them under the shell so that the creature's movement wouldn't tip it over. Vorbis believed that no opportunity to acquire esoteric knowledge should ever be lost, and made a mental note to come back again in a few hours to see how it was getting on, if work permitted. Then he turned his attention to Brother. There was a hell for blasphemers. There was a hell for the disputers of rightful authority. There were a number of hells for liars. There was probably a hell for little boys who wished their grandmothers were dead. There were more than enough hells to go around. This was the definition of eternity. It was the space of time devised by the great god Om to ensure that everyone got the punishment that was due to them. The Omnians had a great many hells. Currently, Brother was going through all of them. Brother Numrod and Brother Vorbis looked down at him, tossing and turning on his bed like a beached whale. "'It's the sun,' said Numrod, almost calm now after the initial shock of having the Exquisitor coming looking for him. The poor lad works all day in that garden. It was bound to happen. Have you tried beating him? said Brother Vorbis. I'm sorry to say that beating young brother is like trying to flog a mattress, said Numrod. He says ow, but I think it's only because he wants to show willing. A very willing lad, brother. He's the one I told you about. He doesn't look very sharp said Vorbis. He's not, said Numrod. Vorbis nodded approvingly. Undue intelligence in a novice was a mixed blessing. Sometimes it could be channeled for the greater glory of Om, but often it caused... well, it did not cause trouble, because Vorbis knew exactly what to do with misapplied intelligence, but it did cause unnecessary work. And yet you tell me his tutors speak so highly of him, he said. Numrod shrugged. "'He is very obedient,' he said. "'And, well, there's his memory.' "'What about his memory?' "'There's so much of it,' 
said Numrod. He has got a good memory. Good is the wrong word. It's superb. He's word perfect on the entire Septuagint. Hmm? said Vorbis. Numrod caught the deacon's eye. As perfect, that is, as anything may be in, in, in this most imperfect world, he muttered. A devoutly red young man, said Vorbis. Eh, uh, said Numrod. No, he can't read. All right. Ah, a lazy boy. The deacon was not a man who dwelt in grey areas. Numrod's mouth opened and shut silently as he sought for the proper words. No, he said. He tries. We are sure he tries. He just does not seem to be able to make the... um, He cannot fathom the link between the sounds and the letters. You have beaten him for that, at least. It seems to have little effect, Deacon. How, then, has he become such a capable pupil? He listens, said Numrod. No one listened quite like brother, he reflected. It made it very hard to teach him. It was like it was like being in a great big cave. All your words just vanished into the unfillable depths of brother's head. The sheer concentrated absorption could reduce unwary tutors to stuttering silence, as every word they uttered whirled away into brother's ears. He listens to everything, said Numrod, and he watches everything. He he takes it all in. Vorbis stared down at Brother. "'And I've never heard him say an unkind word,' said Numrod. "'The other novices make fun of him sometimes, call him the big dumb ox, you know, that sort of thing.' Vorbis's gaze took in Brother's ham-sized hands and tree-trunk legs. He appeared to be thinking deeply. "'Cannot read and write,' said Vorbis. "'But extremely loyal, you say?' "'Loyal and devout,' said Numrod. "'And a good memory,' Vorbis murmured. "'Yes, more than that,' said Numrod. "'It's not like memory at all.' Vorbis appeared to reach a decision. "'Send him to me when he has recovered,' he said. Numrod looked panicky. "'I merely wish to talk to him,' said Vorbis. "'I may have a use for him.' "'Yes, Lord, for I suspect the great god Om moves in mysterious ways.' High above, no sound but the hiss of wind in feathers, the eagle stood on the breeze looking down at the toy buildings of the citadel. It had dropped it somewhere, and now it couldn't find it, somewhere down there, in that little patch of green. Bees buzzed in the bean blossoms, and the sun beat down on the upturned shell of Om. There is also a hell for tortoises. He was too tired to waggle his legs now. That was all you could do, waggle your legs and stick your head out as far as it would go and wave it about in the hope that you could lever yourself over. You died if you had no believers, and that was what a small god generally worried about. But you also died if you died. In the part of his mind not occupied with thoughts of heat, he could feel brother's terror and bewilderment. He shouldn't have done that to the boy. Of course he hadn't been watching him. What god did that? Who cared what people did? Belief was the thing. He'd just picked the memory out of the boy's mind to impress, like a conjurer removing an egg from someone's ear. I'm on my back, and getting hotter, and I'm going to die. And yet, and yet that bloody eagle had dropped him in a compost heap. Some kind of clam, that eagle. A whole place built of rocks, on a rock, in a rocky place, and he landed on the one thing that had break his fall without breaking him as well, and really close to a believer. Odd that made you wonder if it wasn't some kind of divine providence. Except that you were divine providence, and on your back, getting hotter, preparing to die. That man who turned him over, that expression on that mild face, he'd remember that, that expression not of cruelty but of some different level of being, that expression of of terrible peace. A shadow crossed the sun. Om squinted up into the face of Lutze, who gazed at him with gentle upside-down compassion and then turned him the right way up, and then picked up his broom and wandered off without a second glance. Om sagged, catching his breath, and then brightened up. Someone up there likes me, he thought. <laughs> and it's me. Sergeant Simony waited until he was back in his own headquarters before he unfolded his own scrap of paper. 
he was not at all surprised to find it marked with a small drawing of a turtle. He was the lucky one. He lived for a moment like this. Someone had to bring back the writer of the truth, to be a symbol for the movement. It had to be him. The only shame was that he couldn't kill Vorbis. But that had to happen where it could be seen. One day, in front of the temple. Otherwise, no one would believe. Om stumped along a sandy corridor. He'd hung around a while after Brother's disappearance. Hanging around is another thing tortoises are very good at. They're practically world champions. Bloody useless boy, he thought. Served himself right for trying to talk to a barely coherent novice. Of course, the skinny old one hadn't been able to hear him, nor had the chef. Well, the old one was probably deaf. As for the cook, Om made a note that when he was restored to his full godly powers, a special fate was going to lie in wait for the cook. He wasn't sure exactly what it was going to be, but it was going to involve boiling water, and probably carrots would come into it somewhere. He enjoyed the thought of that for a moment. But where did it leave him? It left him in this wretched garden as a tortoise. He knew how he'd got in. He glared in dull terror at the tiny dot in the sky that the eye of memory knew as an eagle. And he'd better find a more terrestrial way out unless he wanted to spend the next month hiding under a melon leaf. Another thought struck him. Good eating. When he had his power again, he was going to spend quite some time devising a few new hells, and a couple of fresh precepts, too. Thou shalt not eat the meat of the turtle. That was a good one. He was surprised he hadn't thought of it before. Perspective, that's what it was. And if he'd thought of one like thou shalt bloody well pick up any distressed tortoises and carry them anywhere they want unless, and this is important, you're an eagle, a few years ago, he wouldn't be in this trouble now. Nothing else for it, he'd have to find the Cenobiarch himself. Someone like a high priest would be bound to be able to hear him. And he'd be in this place somewhere. High priests tended to stay put. He should be easy enough to find. And while he might currently be a tortoise, Om was still a god. How hard could it be? He'd have to go upwards. That's what a hierarchy meant. You found the top man by going upwards. Wobbling slightly, his shell jerking from side to side, the former great god Om set off to explore the citadel erected to his greater glory. He couldn't help noticing things had changed a lot in three thousand years. Me? said Brother. But, uh, but... I don't believe he means to punish you, said Numrod, although punishment is what you richly deserve, of course. We, we, we all richly deserve he added piously. But why? Why? Mm, he said he just wants to talk to you. But there is nothing I could possibly say that a quisitor wants to hear, wailed Brother. Yeah. Mm, I'm sure you are not questioning the deacon's wishes, said Numrod. No, no, of course not, said Brother. He hung his head. Good boy, said Numrod. He patted as far up Brother's back as he could reach. "'Just you trot along,' he said. "'I'm sure everything will be all right.' And then, because he too had been brought up in habits of honesty, he added, "'Probably all right.' There were few steps in the citadel. The progress of the many processions that marked the complex rituals of Great Om demanded long, gentle slopes. Such steps as there were were low enough to encompass the faltering steps of very old men and there were so many very old men in the citadel. Sand blew in all the time from the desert. Drifts built up on the steps and in the courtyards, despite everything that an army of brush-wielding novices could do. But a tortoise has very inefficient legs. "'Thou shall build shallower steps,' he hissed, hauling himself up. Feet thundered past him a few inches away. This was one of the main thoroughfares of the citadel, leading to the place of lamentation, and was trodden by thousands of pilgrims every day. Once or twice an errant sandal caught his shell and spun him around. "'Your feet to fly from your body and be buried in a termite mound,' he screamed. It made him feel a little better. Another foot clipped him and slid him across the stones. He fetched up with a clang against a curved metal grill set low in one wall. Only a lightning grab with his jaws stopped him slipping through it. He ended up hanging by his mouth over a cellar. A tortoise has incredibly powerful jaw muscles. He swayed a bit, legs wobbling. 
all right. A tortoise in a crevassed rocky landscape was used to this sort of thing. He just had to get a leg hooked. Faint sounds drew themselves to his attention. There was the clink of metal, and then a very soft whimper. Om swivelled his eye around. The grill was high in one wall of a very long, low room. It was brightly illuminated by the light wells that ran everywhere through the citadel. Vorbis had made a point of that. The Inquisitors shouldn't work in the shadows, he said, but in the light, where they could see very clearly what they were doing. So could Om. He hung from the grill for some time, unable to take his eye off the row of benches. On the whole, Vorbis discouraged red-hot irons, spiked chains and things with drills and big screws on, unless it was for a public display on an important fast day. It was amazing what you could do, he always said, with a simple knife. But many of the Inquisitors liked the old ways best. After a while, Om very slowly hauled himself up to the grill, neck muscles twitching. Like a creature with its mind on something else, the tortoise hooked first one leg over a bar and then another. His back legs waggled for a while, and then he hooked a claw onto the rough stonework. He strained for a moment and then pulled himself back into the light. He walked off slowly, keeping close to the wall to avoid the feet. He had no alternative to walking slowly in any case, but now he was walking slowly because he was thinking. Most gods find it hard to walk and think at the same time. Anyone could go to the place of lamentation. It was one of the great freedoms of Omnianism. There were all sorts of ways to petition the great god, but they depended largely on how much you could afford, which was right and proper and exactly how things should be. After all, those who had achieved success in the world clearly had done it with the approval of the great god, because it was impossible to believe that they had managed it with his disapproval. In the same way, the Quisition could act without possibility of flaw. Suspicion was proof. How could it be anything else? The great god would not have seen fit to put the suspicion in the minds of his exquisitors, unless it was right that it should be there. Life could be very simple if you believed in the great god Om, and sometimes quite short, too. But there were always the improvident, the stupid, and those who, because of some flaw or oversight in this life, or a past one, were not even able to afford a pinch of incense, and the great god, in his wisdom and mercy, as filtered through his priests, had made a provision for them. Prayers and entreaties could be offered up in the place of lamentation. They would assuredly be heard. They might even be heeded. Behind the place, which was a square two hundred metres across, rose the great temple itself. There, without a shadow of a doubt, the god listened. Or somewhere close, anyway. Thousands of pilgrims visited the place every day. A heel knocked Om's shell, bouncing him off the wall. On the rebound, a crutch caught the edge of his carapace and whirled him away into the crowd, spinning like a coin. He bounced up against the bedroll of an old woman, who, like many others, reckoned that the efficacy of her petition was increased by the amount of time she spent in the square. The god blinked muzzily. This was nearly as bad as eagles. It was nearly as bad as the cellar. No, perhaps nothing was as bad as the cellar. He caught a few words before another passing foot kicked him away. The drought has been on our village for three years. A little rain, O Lord? Rotating on the top of his shell, vaguely wondering if the right answer might stop people kicking him, the great god muttered, No problem. Another foot bounced him, unseen by any of the pious, between the forest of legs. The world was a blur. He caught an ancient voice, steeped in hopelessness, saying, Lord, Lord, why must my son be taken to join your divine legion? Who now will tend the farm? Could you not take some other boy? Don't worry about it, squeaked Om. A sandal caught him under his tail and flicked him several yards across the square. No one was looking down. It was generally believed that staring fixedly at the golden horns on the temple roof while uttering the prayer gave it added potency. Where the presence of the tortoise was dimly registered as a bang on the ankle, it was disposed of by an automatic prod with the other foot. My wife, who is sick with the... Right. Kick. Make clean the well in our village, which is foul... You got it. Kick. Every year the locusts come, and I promise only kick. Lost upon the seas these five months. Stop kicking me. The tortoise landed right side up in a brief clear space. Visible. 
So much of animal life is the recognition of pattern, the shapes of hunter and hunted. To the casual eye, the forest is, well, just a forest. To the eye of the dove, it is so much unimportant fuzzy green background to the hawk, which you did not notice on the branch of a tree. To the tiny dot of the hunting buzzard in the heights, the whole panorama of the world is just a fog, compared to the scurrying prey in the grass. From his perch on the horns themselves, the eagle leapt into the sky. Fortunately, the same awareness of shapes that made the tortoise so prominent in a square full of scurrying humans made the tortoise's one eye swivel upwards in dread anticipation. Eagles are single-minded creatures. Once the idea of lunch is fixed in their mind, it tends to remain there until satisfied. There were two divine legionaries outside Vorbus's quarters. They looked sideways at Brother as he knocked timorously at the door, as if looking for a reason to assault him. A small grey priest opened the door and ushered Brother into a small, barely furnished room. He pointed meaningfully at a stool. Brother sat down. The priest vanished behind a curtain. Brother took one glance around the room and... Blackness engulfed him. Before he could move, and Brother's reflexes were not well coordinated at the best of times, a voice by his ear said, "'Now, Brother, do not panic. I order you not to panic.' There was a cloth in front of Brother's face. Just nod, boy. Brother nodded. They put a hood over your face. All the novices knew that. Stories were told in the dormitories. They put a cloth over your face so the Inquisitors didn't know who they were working on. Good. Now we are going into the next room. Be careful where you tread. Hands guided him upright and across the floor. Through the mists of incomprehension he felt the brush of the curtain and then was jolted down some steps and into a sandy-floored room. The hand spun him a few times, firmly but without apparent ill will, and then led him along a passageway. There was a swish of another curtain, and then the indefinable sense of a larger space. Afterwards, long afterwards, Brother realised there was no terror. A hood had been slipped over his head in the room of the head of the Quisition, and it never occurred to him to be terrified, because he had faith. "'There is a stool behind you. Be seated.' Brother sat. You may remove the hood. Brother removed the hood. He blinked. Seated on stools at the far end of the room, with a holy legionary on either side of them, were three figures. He recognised the aquiline face of Deacon Vorbis. The other two were a short and a stocky man, and a very fat one. Not heavily built, like Brother, but a genuine lard tub. All three wore plain grey robes. There was no sign of any branding irons or even of scalpels. All three were staring intently. "'Novice brother,' said Vorbis. Brother nodded. Vorbis gave a light laugh, the kind made by very intelligent people when they think of something that probably isn't very amusing. <laughs> "'And, of course, one day we shall have to call you Brother Brother,' he said. "'Or even... Father Brother. <laughs> Rather confusing, I think. Best to be avoided. I think we shall have to see to it that you become Subdeacon Brother just as soon as possible. What do you think of that? Brother did not think anything of it. He was vaguely aware that advancement was being discussed, but his mind had gone blank. Anyway, enough of this, said Vorbis, with the slight exasperation of someone who realises that he is going to have to do a lot of work in this conversation. "'Do you recognise these learned fathers on my left and right?' Brother shook his head. "'Good. They have some questions to ask you?' Brother nodded. The very fat man leaned forward. "'Do you have a tongue, boy?' Brother nodded, and then, feeling that perhaps this wasn't enough, presented it for inspection. Vorbis laid a restraining hand on the fat man's arm. "'I think our young friend is a little overawed,' he said mildly. He smiled. "'Now, brother, please put it away. I am going to ask you some questions. Do you understand?' Brother nodded. "'When you first came into my apartments, you were for a few seconds in the anteroom. Please describe it to me.' Brother stared frog-eyed at him but the turbines of recollection ground into life without his volition, pouring the words into the forefront of his mind. It is a room 
uh, about three metres square with white walls. There is sand on the floor except in the corner by the door where the flagstones are visible. There is a window on the opposite wall about two metres up. There were three bars in the window. There is a three-legged stool. There is a holy icon of the prophet Ossory, carved from aphasia wood and set with silver leaf. There is a scratch in the bottom left-hand corner of the frame. There is a shelf under the window. There is nothing on the shelf but a tray. Vorbis steepled his long, thin fingers in front of his nose. "'On the tray?' he said. "'I'm sorry, Lord.' "'What uh, was on the tray, my son?' Images whirled in front of Brother's eyes. On the tray was a thimble, a bronze thimble, and two needles. On the tray was a length of cord. There were knots in the cord, three knots, and nine coins were on the tray. There was a silver cup on the tray, decorated with the pattern of acacia leaves. Uh, there was a long dagger, I, th I think it was steel, with a black handle with seven ridges on it. There was a small piece of black cloth on the tray. Uh, there was a stylus and a slate. "'Tell me about the coins,' murmured Vorbis. Three of them were citadel scents,' said Brother promptly. "'Good,' said Vorbis. "'Very good. "'Oh, and uh, Brother?' "'Yes, Lord?' "'You will forget this meeting. "'You have not been in this room. "'You have not seen us here.' "'Brother gaped at him. "'This was nonsense. "'You couldn't forget things just by wishing. "'Some things forgot themselves.' the things in those locked rooms, but that was because of some mechanism he couldn't access. What did this man mean? Yes, Lord, he said. It seemed the simplest way. Gods have no one to pray to. The great god Om scurried towards the nearest statue, next stretched, inefficient legs pumping. The statue happened to be himself as a bull, trampling an infidel, although this was no great comfort. It was only a matter of time before the eagles stopped circling and swooped. Om had been a tortoise for only three years, but with the shape he had inherited a grab bag of instincts, and a lot of them centred around a total terror of the one wild creature that had found out how to eat tortoise. Gods have no one to pray to. Om really wished that this was not the case. But everyone needs someone. Brother... Brother was a little uncertain about his immediate future. Deacon Vorbis had clearly cut him loose from his chores as a novice, but he had nothing to do for the rest of the afternoon. He gravitated towards the garden. There were beans to tie up, and he welcomed the fact. You knew where you were with beans. They didn't tell you to do impossible things like forget. Besides, if he was going to be away for a while, he ought to mulch the melons and explain things to Lutzei. Lutzei came with the gardens. Every organisation has someone like him. They might be pushing a broom in obscure corridors or wandering among the shelves in the back of the stores, where they are the only person who knows where anything is, or have some ambiguous but essential relationship with the boiler room. Everyone knows who they are, and no one remembers a time when they weren't there, or knows where they go when they're not, well, where they usually are. Just occasionally, people who are slightly more observant than most other people, which is not on the face of it very difficult, stop and wonder about them for a while, and then get on with something else. Strangely enough, given his gentle ambling from garden to garden around the citadel, Lutzei never showed much interest in the plants themselves. He dealt in soil, manure, muck, compost, loam and dust, and the means of moving it about. Generally, he was pushing a broom or turning over a heap, once anyone put seeds in anything, he lost interest. He was raking the paths when Brother entered. He was good at raking paths. He left scallop patterns and gentle soothing curves. Brother always felt apologetic about walking on them. He hardly ever spoke to Lutzei, because it didn't matter much what anyone ever said to Lutzei. The old man just nodded and smiled his single-toothed smile in any case. "'I'm going away for a little while.' said Brother, loudly and distinctly. I expect someone else will be sent to look after the gardens, but there are some things that need doing. Nod. Smile. The old man followed him patiently along the rows, while Brother spoke beans and herbs. Understand, said Brother, after ten minutes of this. Nod. Smile. Nod. Smile. Beckon. What? Nod. Smile. Beckon. Nod. Smile. Beckon. Smile. 
Lutze walked his little crab-monkey walk to the little area at the far end of the walled garden which contained his heaps, the flowerpot stacks and all the other cosmetics of the garden beautiful. The old man slept there, brother suspected. Nod, smile, beckon. There was a small trestle table in the sun by a stack of bean canes. A straw mat had been spread on it, and on the mat were half a dozen pointy-shaped rocks, none of them bigger than a foot high. A careful arrangement of sticks had been constructed around them. Bits of thin wood shadowed some parts of the rocks. Small metal mirrors directed sunlight towards other areas. Paper cones at odd angles appeared to be funnelling the breeze to very precise points. Brother had never heard about the art of bonsai and how it was applied to mountains. They're, uh, very nice, he said uncertainly. Nod, smile, pick up a small rock, smile, urge, urge. Oh, I really couldn't take an urge, urge, grin, nod. Brother took the tiny mountain. It had a strange, unreal heaviness. To his hand it felt like a pound or so, but in his head it weighed thousands of very, very small tons. Er, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Nod, smile, push away politely. It's very, um, mountainous, Nod grin. That can't really be snow on the top, can? Brother! His head jerked up, but the voice had come from inside. Oh, no, he thought wretchedly. He pushed the little mountain back into Lutze's hands. But, uh, you keep it for me, yes? Brother! All that was a dream, wasn't it, before I was important and talked to by deacons? No, it wasn't. Help me. The petitioners scattered as the eagle made a pass over the place of lamentation. It wheeled only a few feet above the ground and perched on the statue of Great Om, trampling the infidel. It was a magnificent bird, golden-brown and yellow-eyed, and it surveyed the crowds with blank disdain. It's a sign, said an old man with a wooden leg. "'Yes, yes, a sign,' said a young woman next to him. "'A sign!' they gathered round the statue. "'It's a bugger,' said a small and totally unheard voice from somewhere around their feet. "'But what's it a sign of?' said an elderly man who had been camping out in the square for three days. "'What do you mean, of?' "'It's a sign,' said the wooden-legged man. "'It don't have to be a sign.' Of anything? That's a suspicious kind of question to ask. What's it a sign of? There's got to be a sign of something, said the elderly man. That's a referential wasn't in the name. A gerund. Yeah, could be a gerund. A skinny figure appeared at the edge of the group, moving surreptitiously yet with surprising speed. It was wearing the jeliba of the desert tribes, but around its neck was a tray on a strap. There was an ominous suggestion of sticky sweet things covered in dust. "'It could be a messenger from the great god himself,' said the woman. "'It's a bloody eagle is what it is,' said a resigned voice from somewhere among the ornamental bronze homicide at the base of the statue. "'Dates, figs, sherbets, holy relics, nice fresh indulgences, lizards on a stick.' said the man with the tray, hopefully. "'I thought when he appeared in the world it was as a swan or, or a bull,' said the wooden-legged man. "'Eh,' said the unregarded voice of the tortoise. "'Always wondered about that,' said a young novice at the back of the crowd. "'You know, well, swans are a bit lacking in, in machismo, yes?' "'May you be stoned to death for blasphemy!' said the woman hotly. The great god hears every irreverent word you utter. Eh, from under the statue. And the man with the tray oiled forward a little further, saying, Clatchian delight, honeyed wasps, get them while they're cold. It's a point, though, said the elderly man in a kind of boring, unstoppable voice. I mean, there's something very godly about an eagle. King of birds, am I right? It's only a better-looking turkey, said the voice from under the statue. Brain the size of a walnut. Very noble bird, the eagle. Intelligent, too, 
said the elderly man. Interesting fact, eagles are the only birds to work out how to eat tortoises, you know. They pick them up, flying up very high, and drop them onto the rocks, smashes them right open. <laughs> Amazing. One day, said a dull voice from down below, I'm going to be back on form again, and you're going to be very sorry you said that for a very long time. I might even go so far as to make even more time just for you to be sorry in. Or, or, no, I'll make you a tortoise. See how you like it, eh? That rushing wind around your shell, the ground getting bigger the whole time. That'd be an interesting fact. That sounds dreadful, said the woman, looking up at the eagle's glare. I wonder what passes through the poor little creature's head when he's dropped. "'His shell, madam,' said the great god Om, trying to squeeze himself even further under the bronze overhang. The man with the tray was looking dejected. "'Tell you what,' he said. Two bags of sugared dates for the price of one. How about it? And that's cutting my own hand off.' The woman glanced at the tray. "'Here, there's flies all over everything,' she said. "'Currants, madam.' "'Why'd they just fly away, then?' the woman demanded. The man looked down, then he looked back up into her face. "'A miracle,' he said, waving his hands dramatically. "'The time of miracles is at hand.' The eagle shifted uneasily. It recognised humans only as pieces of mobile landscape, which in the lambing season in the high hills might be associated with thrown stones when it stooped upon the newborn lamb but which otherwise were as unimportant in the scheme of things as bushes and rocks. But it had never been so close to so many of them. Its mad eyes swivelled backwards and forwards uncertainly. At that moment trumpets rang out across the place. The eagle looked around wildly, its tiny predatory mind trying to deal with this sudden overload. It leapt into the air. The worshippers fought to get out of its way as it dipped across the flagstones and then rose majestically towards the turrets of the great temple and the hot sky. Below it, the doors of the great temple, each one made of forty tons of gilded bronze, opened by the breath, it was said, of the great god himself, swung open ponderously, and this was the holy part, silently. Brother's enormous sandals flapped and flapped on the flagstones. Brother always put a lot of effort into running. He ran from the knees, lower legs thrashing like paddle wheels. This was too much. There was a tortoise who said he was the god, and this couldn't be true except that it must be true because of what it knew. And he'd been tried by the Quisition, or something like that. Anyway, it hadn't been as painful as he'd been led to expect. "'Brother!' The square, normally alive with the susurration of a thousand prayers, had gone quiet. The pilgrims had all turned to face the temple. His mind boiling with the events of the day, Brother shouldered his way through the suddenly silent crowd. "'Brother!' People have reality dampers. It is a popular fact that nine-tenths of the brain is not used, and like most popular facts, it is wrong. Not even the most stupid creator would go to the trouble of making the human head carry around several pounds of unnecessary grey goo if its only real purpose was, for example, to serve as a delicacy for certain remote tribesmen in unexplored valleys. It is used, and one of its functions is to make the miraculous seem ordinary and turn the unusual into the usual. Because if this was not the case, then human beings faced with the daily wondrousness of everything would go around wearing big, stupid grins similar to those worn by certain remote tribesmen who occasionally get raided by the authorities and have the contents of their plastic greenhouses very seriously inspected. They'd say, wow, a lot, and no one would do much work. Gods don't like people not doing much work. People who aren't busy all the time might start to think. Part of the brain exists to stop this happening. It is very efficient. It can make people experience boredom in the middle of marvels and Brothers was working feverishly. So he didn't immediately notice that he'd pushed through the last row of people and had trotted out into the middle of a wide pathway until he turned and saw the procession approaching. The Cenobiarch was returning to his apartments after conducting, or at least nodding vaguely while his chaplain conducted on his behalf, the evening service. 
Brother spun round, looking for a way to escape. Then there was a cough beside him, and he stared up into the furious faces of a couple of lesser EMs, and between them the bemused and geriatrically good-natured expression of the Cenobiarch himself. The old man raised his hand automatically to bless Brother with the holy horns, and then two members of the Divine Legion picked up the novice by the elbows on the second attempt and marched him swiftly out of the procession's path and hurled him into the crowd. Brother! Brother bounded across the plaza to the statue and leaned against it, panting. I'm going to go to hell, he muttered, for all eternity. Who cares? Now, get me away from here. No one was paying him any attention now. They were all watching the procession. Even watching the procession was a holy act. Brother knelt down and peered into the scrollwork around the base of the statue. One beady eye glared back at him. How did you get under there? It was touch and go, said the tortoise. I tell you, when I'm back on form, there's going to be a considerable redesigning of eagles. What's the eagle trying to do to you? said Brother. It wants to carry me off to its nest and give me dinner, snarled the tortoise. What do you think it wanted to do? There was a short pause in which it contemplated the futility of sarcasm in the presence of Brother. It was like throwing meringues at a castle. It wants to eat me, it said patiently. But you're a tortoise. I am your god. But currently in the shape of a tortoise, with a shell on, is what I mean. That doesn't worry eagles, said the tortoise darkly. They pick you up, carry you a few hundred feet, and then drop you. Ooh, No, more like crack splat. How did you think I got in here? You were dropped? But I landed on a pile of dirt in your garden. That's eagles for you. Whole place built of rock and paved with rock on a big rock, and they miss. That was lucky. Million to one chance, said Brother. I never had this trouble when I was a bull. The number of eagles who can pick up a bull, you can count them on the fingers of one head. Anyway, said the tortoise, there's worse here than eagles. There's a... There's good eating on one of them, you know, said a voice behind Brother. He stood up guiltily, the tortoise in his hand. Oh, hello, Mr. Dublar, he said. Everyone in the city knew cut-me-own-hand-off Dublar, purveyor of suspiciously new holy relics, suspiciously old rancid sweetmeats on a stick, gritty figs, and long-past-the-sell-by dates. He was a sort of natural force, like the wind. No one knew where he came from or where he went at night, but he was there every dawn selling sticky things to the pilgrims. And in this the priests reckoned he was on to a good thing, because most of the pilgrims were coming for the first time and therefore lacked the essential thing you needed in dealing with Dublar, which was the experience of having dealt with him before. The sight of someone in the place trying to unstick their jaws with dignity was a familiar one. Many a devout pilgrim, after a thousand miles of perilous journey, was forced to make his petition in sign language. "'Fancy some sherbet for afters,' said Dublar, hopefully. "'Only one cent a glass, and that's cutting me own hand off.' "'Who is this fool?' said Om. "'I'm not going to eat it,' said Brother, hurriedly. "'Going to teach it to do tricks, then,' said Dublar, cheerfully. "'Look through hoops, that kind of thing.' "'Get rid of him,' said Om. "'Smite him on the head, why don't you, and push the body behind the statue?' "'Shut up,' said Brother.' beginning to experience once again the problems that occur when you're talking to someone no one else can hear. "'No need to be like that about it,' said Dublar. "'I wasn't talking to you,' said Brother. "'Talking to the tortoise, were you?' said Dublar. Brother looked guilty. "'My old mum used to talk to a gerbil,' Dublar went on. "'Pets are always a great help in times of stress, and in times of starvation too, of course.' "'This man,' "'He's not honest,' said Om. "'I can read his mind. "'Can you?' "'Can I what?' said Dublar. "'He gave Brother a lopsided look. "'Anyway, it'll be company on your journey.' "'What journey?' 
To Ephebe, the secret mission to talk to the infidel. Brother knew he shouldn't be surprised. News went around the enclosed world of the Citadel like a bushfire after a drought. Oh, he said, that journey. They say Friot's going, said the Blah, and that other one, the, uh, the Aminance Grease. Deacon Vorbis is a very nice person, said Brother. He has been very kind to me. He gave me a drink. What of? Hehe. <laughs> "'Never mind,' said de Blas. "'Of course I wouldn't say a word against him myself,' he added quickly. "'Why are you talking to this stupid person?' Om demanded. "'He's a friend of mine,' said Brother. "'I wish he was a friend of mine,' said de Blas. "'Friends like that, you never have enemies. "'Can I press you to a candid sultana on a stick?' End of CD 2